Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. We believe that the Bible is God's inspired word. We believe every word of it is inspired. But when you read your Bible and all of a sudden there's a note telling you that this part of the Bible is probably not supposed to be there, then you're in a bit of a quandary in regard to the absolute accuracy, inerrancy, and authority of Scripture. So I want to help you out with that because that's part of my job as a pastor. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the Gospel of Mark. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Mark, chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, in a message titled, The Gospel to All the World. Now, here's Pastor Brian. All right, so here we are, the final study in the Gospel of Mark, and We're going to focus today on what is commonly called the Great Commission, and that will be our primary emphasis, but we have a few other things to consider before we get there. But as we come to the final verses of Mark's gospel and the command given by Jesus to the disciples to go into the whole world and to proclaim the gospel, that, of course, is in a sense what everything has been moving toward in as much as Jesus has chosen these men, he has trained these men, and now they are going to be sent out for the great task of taking the good news to the farthest parts of the earth. Because now everything has been clarified. The message of Christ's victory over sin and death through the cross and resurrection, the disciples now understand this And they are now ready to go and announce this to the world. They they couldn't have done that before. Of course, before the death and resurrection, it would have been premature. But now that they understand the whole story and, and God's whole purpose, they are ready to take the message to the world. And so we're going to consider that, as I said, but there are a few things that I want us to look at first. And one of them, the first one is a bit of a technical thing, but it's an important thing. And it has to do with the verses that we just read together. These verses here in the 16th chapter, beginning in verse 9 through verse 20. You might not be aware of this, but there is a debate over, it's a scholarly debate over whether or not these verses were written by Mark and should be included in his gospel. Now, in all modern versions of the Bible, such as the NIV, which is the New International Version, the ESV, the English Standard Version, the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, there is some indicator in every one of these Bibles. If you have one of those Bibles, There's going to be some indicator informing the reader that these verses are not in the earliest manuscripts. And and some will even add this, not in the earliest and the most reliable manuscripts. Part of that sentence is true. The other part is 
really more just an opinion. These verses are not in the earliest manuscripts, but it's only an opinion that the earliest manuscripts are the most reliable. But nevertheless, that is somewhere declared in the, the Bible that you have, I would imagine, even in your lap today. Now, my Thomas Nelson New King James Version that I am preaching from here this morning has even there a footnote that reads this. I'm going to quote it verbatim to you. Verses 9 through 20 are bracketed in the modern Greek text as not in the original text. They are lacking in Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus, although nearly all other manuscripts of Mark contain them. So now, now that's the footnote in my New King James Version. Now, in my NIV Bible, it says this, and it's not even a footnote. It actually says this when you come to the end of verse 8, then it says this in the NIV Bible. If you have an NIV, you will know this. It says, the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 through 20. And the NIV translators are so certain that these verses were not part of Mark's original text that they then change the font, size, and style to distinguish between these verses and the rest of Mark's gospel. So for them, it's not even a debate. For them, it's just a, they've decided that these were not in the original text of Mark. Now, you might be wondering, why are we talking about this? Well, we're talking about this for this reason. We believe that the Bible is God's inspired word. We believe every word of it is inspired. And we say that, and we teach people that, and we want to give people the confidence that they can trust the scripture. But when you read your Bible, and all of a sudden there's a note telling you that this part of the Bible is probably not supposed to be there, then you're in a bit of a quandary in regard to your conviction about this whole idea of the absolute accuracy, inerrancy, and authority of Scripture. So I want to help you out with that because that's part of my job as a pastor to help you understand why these things are even being debated. And so here are two questions that arise based upon the fact that there is this debate. Number one question, are they part of the original text of Mark or not? We want to address that. And secondly, does it really matter? Does it really matter? So I want to give you, first of all, the arguments against them being in Mark, and then I want to give you the argument for them being in Mark. So the argument against them being original to Mark. In other words, this argument argues that these verses from 9 to 20 were not in Mark's original gospel and therefore uh, shouldn't be considered really the gospel of Mark. What is the argument in favor of that? Well, it's the manuscript evidence. And in this case, it's the idea of the oldest manuscript. So the oldest Greek manuscripts we have are the ones that I mentioned a moment ago, Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus. They're both uh, sometime 
between three, say 320 and maybe 350. That's the dates on those. So these are the oldest Greek manuscripts we have containing the gospel of Mark and verses nine through 20 are not in those manuscripts. So the scholars say it wasn't in the original. The, the scholars would argue that this was added later by somebody else. So that's their first argument. The second argument is that verses 9 through 20 differ in style and word use from the rest of Mark. Therefore, it's obvious that somebody else added this later. Now, it is true that the, the style seems to be different. And it is true that there are different words that are used. In the last few verses from 9 to 20, there are 14 words used, 14 Greek words used that have not previously been used in Mark's gospel. And so some say, see, it's obvious Mark didn't write this because look at these words. Mark never uses these words earlier. And now suddenly he's got these words in the final portion here. Now, if we back up for just a second, if we go to verse 8... This is how then, okay, so those who, who do not believe that these should be part of Mark, this is how they see the gospel of Mark ending. Let me read it to you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So for those who reject verses 9 through 20 as authentic to Mark, they say this is where Mark's gospel ended. Now, you will notice, I think, this would be a very abrupt ending to the gospel. It would be a much different ending than Matthew, Luke, or John. It's, it seems to be an incomplete ending. Now, some people would say it's incomplete in the sense that it doesn't give us any further detail, but it's actually what Mark intended because Mark has a habit of being abrupt. And so this is just like, what Mark normally does, he just, you know, makes an, sort of an abrupt statement and then he moves on to something else. So some people say that Mark intended to, to leave it like this. Other people that believe that the passage that we just read is not authentic to Mark, the verses 9 through 20 say, no, Mark didn't intend to leave it this way. He didn't finish it abruptly. He was probably interrupted and not able to finish it. But then somebody came along later and thought, this needs an ending because after all, this is way too abrupt. It doesn't include the finer details of what happened after the resurrection. It doesn't include a great commission or anything like that. So someone came along and added that later. So the arguments against verses 9 through 20 being original are manuscript evidence, the oldest manuscripts, and the difference in style and word use. Now, the arguments for them being original to Mark. So what are the arguments for? No, these actually are the words of Mark and we should receive them as the words of Mark. Number one, manuscript evidence. So we've got the same thing. Now here, we have a majority of manuscripts. So in, in the case against it, it's it's the age of the manuscript. So the oldest manuscripts don't contain it. But in the argument for, the majority of manuscripts do contain it. 
Now, the majority of manuscripts are older than the two that I mentioned, the Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus. So again, the idea is that, no, somebody added this later and it got in these later manuscripts because it, you know, it was added, but it wasn't in the originals. And that's obvious because of the fact that the oldest manuscripts don't contain it. Now, the other thing in support of this being original to Mark is that these words from verses 9 through 20, they were quoted earlier than Sinaiticus or Vaticanus. For example, in 100 AD, Papias referred to these verses. And so did Justin Martyr, and so did Irenaeus, and these are men that lived before, in some cases 200 years before, so it's anywhere from 200 years before to 100 years before Vaticanus and Sinaiticus even were existed. These guys are quoting from it, from the passage that they say wasn't original. So what this then would seem to indicate is that they must have had been included in an earlier text. It must have been there because how could these guys quote it if it wasn't, if it wasn't there? So the argument really comes down to it was either removed for one reason or another from the earlier text where it was originally found or it was inserted later or it was never in. The, yeah, so it wasn't there. So it was inserted later. So this brings us to which one is it? The answer is I don't know. Nobody knows. So it's a matter of opinion. Now, I tend to lean more toward being original to Mark. And the main reason I do that is because two things. I think we could easily find a manuscript later that is older than either Sinaiticus or Vaticanus. And then that, that could prove it. So I, although I like, I like my NIV, I don't like the dogmatism of the scholars and the audacity of them to just say this should not be there. I think it's okay to say it's questionable, but to be dogmatic to the point where they actually change the font and the style and the size and very authoritatively say this should not be there, I, th I think that's going too far myself. So I tend to lead to lean toward it being original to Mark, but I don't know that anyone can say for sure. No one can say for sure. But the second question that we're asking is this, does it matter? So what if it was proven somehow that this was not original to Mark, that it was added later by somebody else? Does that, what, it, what does that do? It doesn't really do anything because what is said is true and we know it's true from the other three Gospels that there's no debate about whatsoever. Mark doesn't have any new information here. As we'll see in a second, what Mark records is paralleled with what Luke recorded, with what John recorded, and with what Matthew recorded. So at the end of the day, if Mark did not include this, if let's just say Mark really did end at verse 8, maybe because he just that was his style, he was going to be abrupt. Or let's say he got interrupted and never got back to it. It doesn't matter because what's said is true. And 
what's said would then be just as inspired as the rest of Mark because it's consistent with the record of the events of the resurrection. So there you have it. That's our theology lesson for today. But like I said, it, I think it's important because, and this is where I see, you know, I kind of am in two worlds. I'm not a scholar. I'm a Bible teacher and a pastor, but I intermingle with scholars. And I see that scholars and, and Bible teachers and pastors, they need each other. And we, and we help each other out. And I depend on scholarly works. And they're of great benefit to me many, many times. But I think scholars also really need the input of pastors. Because scholars generally tend to be disconnected from the boots on the ground type of stuff. And, you know, they can come up with all kinds of theories and ideas. And they don't realize when they're throwing these out there, this can, this can be damaging to people's faith. So the pastor comes along and says, hey, that's a, an interesting thought. But think about the rest of this stuff, too. Because maybe in your scholarly context, you haven't really thought about things in a pastoral way. So I'm speaking to you as your pastor, and I want you to know that if you're reading your NIV and you see that very bold statement that, you know, this is not in the original, that you're not shaken by that, but you realize, okay, this is, this is because there is some debate about this particular passage. So that, that's the practical purpose for looking at it. The second thing, which is actually the third thing here that I want to point out is just going back to the text for a second itself, the verses that we read. And I just want to remind you of two things. I want to remind you of the honesty, which supports the authenticity of the text. And then I want to just point out a couple of parallels here. One, one parallel with Luke and one parallel with John. But one of the things that I believe, and I know many others feel the same way, is one of the beautiful things about the, the scriptures and the New Testament is the honesty of the text. Now, you know, there are lots of people that try to deny the integrity of the scriptures. There are lots and lots of people who say, well, the Bible, you know, you can't believe this. It was all made up. This is just mythology. This is legend and so forth. We've talked about those things in the past. So there are people who say that, but they don't stop to think that, you know, if you're making something up that you're trying to convince people is, is really the truth, it's highly doubtful that you're going to include in your story that there were people right there at the time who doubted that it was true. You're not going to do that. That doesn't make any sense. If I'm making up a story and I'm trying to convince you that it's true, I'm not going to include in it a bunch of people that are doubting. I'm just going to skip over that part of it. But they didn't do that. Why? Because it's true. They did doubt. And why did they doubt? They doubted because they didn't expect it. The last thing they expected was for Jesus to rise from the dead. They didn't understand that he was going to do it. And so they were absolutely amazed that he did rise from the dead. And it was like, it was just too good to be true. 
But of course, they came to fully embrace it, and that's how the story goes on. But really quickly, two things here. There's uh, two references that I want to point out. In verse 12, here is Mark's version of the Emmaus Road, and the Emmaus Road story is recorded in Luke. And maybe you remember, Jesus, there's two men, this is after the death of Christ and after his resurrection, there's two men walking along the road, Jesus joins them, but he's, his identity is somehow veiled, they don't recognize him. And so he joins them and they're walking along and they're depressed. And he says to them, as he joins them, he says, why are you so sad as you walk along and have this conversation? And they say to him, are you a stranger in Jerusalem? Don't you know the things that have happened here? Jesus says, no. Tell me about it. What things? How Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet, mighty in word and deed, we thought that he was the one that was going to deliver Israel, but he was crucified. He died. And that was three days ago. And certain women, they went to the tomb and they said that his body wasn't there. And Jesus said to them, oh, you foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have written. Should not the Christ who have suffered and entered into his glory? And then it says from that, he opened up all of the scriptures to them about himself. So that's what Mark's referring to here. He's, he's referring to that incident that's recorded in its detail by Luke. And then when we come to verse 14, later he appeared to the 11 as they sat at the table. He rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. This is a story from John's gospel where they're gathered in the upper room. Jesus comes to them, reveals himself to them. They're stunned. They can't believe it, but they finally embrace it. But one of them wasn't there. His name was Thomas. And so then they went and they told Thomas, we've seen the Lord. He was here. He came. He was among us. Thomas said, I'll never believe it. I will not believe it unless I can see it for myself. As a matter of fact, he said, I won't believe it unless I can touch the wounds on his hands and put my hand into his sight. Only then will I believe it. Well, a week later, they were in that same room. Thomas was there this time, and Jesus suddenly appears in their midst, and he says, Thomas, come and touch me and see. And then he says to Thomas, and do not continue to be unbelieving, but believe. And so Mark just gives us a summary, a very brief summary of what happened there. And so, like I said, we see that the verses, whether they were original or not, are accurate reporting of what did happen. And now let's join Pastor Brian as he shares about this month's resource from Back to Basics. Hi, I want to tell you about a book that I think is going to be revolutionary for many, many men and and perhaps for some women too. Most of you know that we have a massive pornography problem in the United States. It's not limited to the United States. It's a worldwide problem. And my friend Ray Ortland has written a book that I think is going to help so many people in dealing with the subject of pornography. The book is called The Death of Porn, 
And the subtitle is Men of Integrity Building a World of Nobility. I had the privilege of reading the book before it was published, and I was able to write a little recommendation in it. And it is the best book I've ever read on the topic because it comes at it from the angle of our identity in Christ and who we are. And because of who we are, we don't need these kinds of things that we often gravitate toward and end up in bondage to. So my recommendation for this month is The Death of Porn, Men of Integrity, Building a World of Nobility by Ray Ortlund. Again, this month's resource is a book titled The Death of Porn, Men of Integrity, Building a World of Nobility by Ray Ortland. You can order the book The Death of Porn by going to our website, backtobasicsradio.com. Scroll down until you see the photo of it and then click on the donate button. When you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you the book The Death of Porn by Ray Ortland. It's our way of saying thank you for your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue next time with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the Gospel of Mark. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.